Hello and welcome to the Imbue Podcast. My name is Alex and today I'm joined by a good friend, Paul Terry. Paul is not only an advisor to Imbue, he's also the former CEO of Staywell Health Incorporated, one of the largest health and wellness companies in the country, the former CEO of Park Nicollet Institute, and current president of Hero Health. Join us as we talk about Paul's journey in college athletics to leading the incredible executive life he has today. Enjoy. Uh, we're going to do a series of four webinars in the next uh, four or five weeks uh, in advance of then the Zoom meeting uh, where we'll do the more synchronous uh, parts of the uh, parts of the think tank. Huh. Sweet. So you didn't get out windsurfing yesterday. <laughs> well, there, uh, there was an era when I was your age and probably even into my 40s, I wouldn't have been able to resist. But there's something about uh, cranky knees and sore backs that uh, <laughs> that have you feel less motivated on ballistic. Because it would have been a you. We would have had you on a small sail yesterday, Alex. We would have had you on. It was so windy. It was so yeah. windy. And so I, knowing that I wouldn't want you in the water most of the time, I would have put you on a sail that wouldn't have been uh, quite as challenging as uh, the sail size you've been on. Some of the bigger ones. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, believe it or not, I've actually been, I've been swimming for the past couple of weeks, even since the ice <laughs> the ice is just starting to open. No, so in a dry suit. No, like no, in, in a swimsuit, regular swimsuit. <laughs> that makes real sense, Alex. Why would you subject yourself to that? It must be Scandinavian my, blood. <laughs> exactly. So my buddy, so one of my buddies actually started this thing this winter. Um, believe it or not, where. Yeah. It, embrace north and we would do a workout and like this is like in the in the freezing cold winter it was like you know zero degrees out we do a workout and then we go yeah. plunge in the lake for like 10 minutes go sit in the lake for 10 minutes after the workout so it was kind of but it's good for recovery so but yeah. anyways so uh we're we're recording what shut the door yeah uh, shutting the door and uh, getting comfortable. So Gail doesn't come. There's a little lag time on your audio. Uh, if my audio is okay, uh, I'm not going to worry about it. But your lag, you just have a little uh, break up now and then. But I'm uh, I'm good to go if you are. Sweet. Yeah, I'm good. It's this is yeah. actually better than what most have. Most of them are lagging a lot, a lot worse. But we can edit all the stuff out. So. All right. Cool. So um, I'm curious. So you're like you're very successful in uh, the wellness space, um, but even even before that, you were a very successful athlete. So I'm curious, like, what was your first beginnings into into sports? Uh, what was your first memory as as an athlete? Yeah. Thanks, Alex. Well, you're uh, uh, in a whole different caliber than I was. You're uh, you were at a level that I never attained in terms of you were a, a big shot at a Division One. Uh, school. I was in Division Two, uh, and I uh, turned out to be a gymnast, which at my height is an unusual sport to have picked. I'm six two, and most gymnasts, as you probably know, are five six to five eight. And uh, <laughs> right. I, had, uh, I migrated to high bar, which was the best event for a tall guy. You could actually a lot of people would say it looked like uh, nicely fluid and and uh, beautifully rhythmic to see such a tall guy on high bar. If I were to try to find my first recollection that uh, had me uh, know that gymnastics was a good pick for me. It probably, frankly, was tree climbing, Alex, meaning, you know, when I was in my formative years, you know, in my uh, 10 to 12-year-old uh, era, me and my buddy, Pete Erickson, we would climb higher than uh, logic would allow to begin with, and then we'd see who could go the highest and jump out of the, <laughs> out of the tree and uh, roll out without... Uh, too much damage. So that was probably an indicator that uh, gymnastics wasn't a bad pick for me. <laughs> That's crazy. How many, how many, how many broken limbs did you have when you were a kid? <laughs> well, I, I actually shattered my uh, legs on a motorcycle accident. So I, I have more broken bones than most people can attest, but you know what? I only, uh, I was pretty fortunate. I, I, um, I broke some teeth on a high bar <laughs> landing oh the wrong God. way, of course. And we created an ankle one time, but I think I was actually relative to most gymnasts, I was pretty uh, injury free. I missed most of my high school 
formative years in that sport because we moved to small towns that didn't have gymnastics. So I really kind of was a walk-on reboot as a freshman in college with very little skills. So the fact that I ended up being the captain of the team after by my senior year was uh, a testament to that. I must have really loved that sport that I could catch up uh, during college. That's crazy for you. I didn't realize that. So you, you were, so because you were living in small towns, you weren't able to compete. And then you were, then like, it's not an easy feat to go to, to go even division two, right? So like without any history for the last four years to go to division two, that's pretty impressive. Right. Well, actually, uh, I lived in the city, my, uh, I think eighth grade, ninth grade and 10th grade. So that's when I started in gymnastics was in junior high. And then I did have some gymnastics my sophomore year in high school. And then I uh, missed out during my junior, senior year, which is obviously when you get good in most sports. So I kind of walked on as like a sophomore in high school caliber athlete. <laughs> and that's why I had a lot of catch up to do. What was that like going on to the team? Like with so much catch up, like, cause you obviously you're a really good athlete, but like, I'm curious what, like, what was your mentality? Like what was the whole process? Like even, even getting there uh, to that division two school? Like, yeah, I think, uh, for me, Alex, the reason that worked just fine is because I, I love that sport because of the fun of it. You know, I, I didn't potentially, I didn't necessarily consider that I was going to be highly competitive, you know, that I was doing yeah. it for uh, for the excitement of it and for the fun of it and for the challenge of it. And then uh, after a year or two of actually making pretty good progress, uh, then it kicked in that, you know, you actually probably could compete pretty, uh, pretty well here. So uh, I think by my junior year, I was, I was hunkered down. And again, not your level of, of training, but uh, I was certainly in training mode that uh, uh, got me placed at the national level. Dang. What were some of the lessons you learned, like going through that process? Like I'd imagine coming in from the ground floor and you worked your way up to a senior level. That must've been a lot. That must've been a character building moment, right? Like to mm. get to, to increase that much or maybe, maybe not. I don't know, but just like, just yeah. thinking about it. Yeah, I think the, the, you know, the cliche, of course, is that, you know, anyone who's willing to work hard enough and sort of uh, really subject themselves to some of the misery that comes with high uh, training, you know, they're going to uh, see results. I think the, the probably the learning that sticks to me for me, Alex, and maybe even the reason I referenced your Division One success compared to Division Two is I think by my junior year, I realized that you're going to compete at whatever level it is that you really surround yourself with. And so mm -hmm. as much as I was a division two athlete and as much as I got lucky, cause there were a couple of other really good high bar guys that kind of took me under their uh, wing. I found myself as often as I could going down to the university of Minnesota, you know, a perennial big 10 champion in gymnastics. And I happened to have a, you know, my best buddy who I mentioned earlier, my tree climbing buddy, Pete, he was a division one high bar uh, guy at the university of Minnesota. Oh, no so way. I found that if I could get down there, you know, once a month or so and just hang with the, the big, big guns. Literally. Huge difference in my ability to, uh, yeah, literally <laughs> made a big difference in my, uh, the acceleration of my ability is just, you know, I think the, the life lesson there is you're, you're going to tend to fall in to the ambition and the capabilities and the, uh, the general culture of where it is, wherever it is that you end up being surrounded by. And so, you know, if the, you're working in a culture that's not pushing and that's not, you know, got super smart people and that's not got a lot of ambitions, you're going to end up kind of being like that. But if you end up in cultures that, you know, are, uh, you're surrounded by people who are smarter than you and better than you and stronger than you, you're going to be better for it. That's interesting because that's the same thing with your friends too, right? Like they say you're the average of the five friends you surround yourself with. So, you know, it's something that maybe that's prevalent mm -hmm. in all areas. But um, what, I, what I was curious, so Pete, he was your good buddy. I didn't realize he actually went to division one. Was he like a big, big reason why you got into sports, like into gymnastics to begin with? Or Well, yeah, I'd say so because we were childhood friends and yeah. uh, I, I uh, you know, I grew up with him. And, you know, the other reason I think about it, Alex, is that as much as he and I loved our tree climbing and sort of were both acrobatic in nature and, you know, we do doubles together and throw each other around and that sort of thing. The other probably influencer that would have a tall guy like me end up in gymnastics because my buddy Pete was equally tall. He was about my size. 
but heavier uh, even. So we had every barrier I had. But what probably explains more why I ended up in gymnastics was my older brothers. I grew up in a family of 11 kids. And two of my older brothers were amazing athletes, one in baseball and one in basketball. They both were good in both sports. And they're both two years ahead of me. And so by the time I ended up getting on these teams that they had been on, the coaches just assumed, you know, I was a star like the other Terry boys, and they'd keep putting me in these star positions. And I wasn't anywhere near as good as those guys were in either baseball or basketball. So wow. at some point, I think I, I uh, rather than suffer as sort of the third Terry, who wasn't quite as good as, as those guys <laughs> were at baseball and basketball, I think I just had to go find my own sport. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, so so when you went to college, was that the highest level that you made it to uh, in gymnastics? So you, like you, yeah. Yeah. So I, my, I think uh, my uh, senior year, uh, I was captain of the team and uh, placed. You know, I was I was ranked nationally and you know was able to compete at the NCAA uh, level at the national championships. Uh, and then uh, it's not uncommon in gymnastics because guys don't peak until their mid twenties. And so the uh, world-class athletes, you know, they'll go until their mid to late twenties to, yeah. to uh, Olympic uh, rounds sometimes after they graduate from college. I did go uh, fifth year and competed in the Middle East league championships, which is a kind of a, uh, a Chicago held national uh, invitational tournament. And then I went on to coaching, Alex, for a couple of years, I was a gymnastics coach. And so I was something of a player coach, if you will. A lot of coaches, when they're still young, uh, they don't just teach, they show. And so uh, because I coached for three years after college, uh, I, I was still working out with the guys. Interesting. That's the same thing in track, too. Like, I was just ch chatting with one of, my, one of my buddies. He's over in Washington. He's a professional uh, athlete now, but he coaches there and, like, works out with athletes and stuff like that. So maybe it's like a – similar mm -hmm. period for that for the athletes right for them to still train and compete professionally if they want to but still have that team aspect right so yeah yeah cool so so when you were uh what were some of the biggest athletes you had or biggest obstacles you overcame during your career as a as a division division or as a college athlete uh, and say uh, one more time alex the biggest what now uh, biggest obstacles. Oh, biggest obstacles. Well, my, my physique, you know, I just wasn't built for the sport. So uh, being a tall guy, I certainly wasn't going to compete on rings, you know, just for leverage reasons. You know, having a shorter body allows you to rotate faster and, and hold uh, strength positions uh, better. Um, you know, I don't know that I've ever felt, other than just sort of not being naturally physically suited for the sport, um, for high bar, that wasn't that hard to overcome just because you can leverage uh, the sport just fine. Um, you know, I suppose like most athletes in retrospect, Alex, I wish I had trained harder. You know, I feel like I was, uh, even though in my senior year, I probably had made as much progress as anyone on the team. Uh, I, uh, you always in retrospect wonder if you could have got a notch higher had you pushed a little harder. So if there was any barrier, probably was just my, um, at the time, not not moving in mentally to what it would take to get to the next level. So. Interesting. So are you're you that way? Do, do, I bet that's not uncommon to any athlete who hasn't been a gold medal Olympian. Yeah. <laughs> anyone, else, anyone else wonders, you know, what would it have taken, you know, not in my case, I was never going to be an Olympian, but uh, in my case, you know, I wondered what it would, it would take. Uh, well, the obvious thing is for me, I was probably pretty close to being an All-American, but I never was an All-American. And so, you know, in retrospect, all these years later, I, I wondered what I might have done differently to get to that level. And the obstacle probably was just uh, either being on a team that didn't quite, you know, uh, I, I gladly, as a coach, uh, coached three All-Americans for that same Division II team. So it was clearly the case that uh, that, that team was capable of producing All-Americans, and I've since you know, helped them uh, be honored in our uh, – this was at St. Cloud State University, Alex. So I was really pleased that the coach, who, uh, who was my coach, is now in their Hall of Fame, 
And then three of the guys I have, I uh, coached are also in their Hall of Fame. Wow, that's that's super impressive. So that's that's an interesting take on it though, because like for me at Kentucky, like I it was more of like the rest. Like, like I I feel like I could have been better, but it wasn't me pushing harder. It was like me pushing smarter. And I think that was the biggest issue either. Because mm-hmm. I didn't have any, I didn't have an issue to work, like to put in the work. I just mm-hmm. I think that the yeah, I maybe I put the trust in the wrong person because you know they I think I think it's it's a balance, right? We have to we have to work and recover, and we did not yeah. and, and endurance sports, yeah. and we didn't do a lot of the recovering part, which I think was mm-hmm. actually kind of crazy. I just I just chatted with uh, another St. Cloud State alumni uh, yesterday. I don't know if you know uh, Peter Tom from Snap oh, Fitness. Yeah. What? I don't think I know him. No. Oh, well, yeah, he, he was St. Cloud. Yeah, he went to St. Cloud too. So. I don't know. I don't think he did any sports there, but yeah. Yeah. So, cool. and uh, so when you were coaching there, I know you had a very bad accent. You briefly touched in, in the beginning. I don't know if you'd be willing to share, but I know that's like a huge adversity moment that you had to get through. And I'm sure another mm. huge character defining moment, maybe in retrospect. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I was referring to a motorcycle accident where I really busted myself up really bad and it was uh, one where I ended up two months in the hospital and then another six months in a wheelchair and then uh, I was on crutches for almost a year because when you break both legs which I did sort of crushed my femur and broke both my tibia and fibula on both legs Can you uh, explain you know, what happened like the, the well the guy pulled out in front of me I was uh it was it was kind of a gnarly, uh, rainy dark day I probably shouldn't even be driving out on a country road and you know I was going full uh, the speed limit and the guy just didn't see me coming and he did a jackrabbit start right in front of me and I just took him head on and crushed the, you know, the truck that uh, he was driving and uh, crushed my legs in the process. Um, so it was one of those where, you know, when you break that much stuff, you basically have to relearn to walk. And that's why you end up, I don't think any hospital nowadays would keep you there as long as I kept, you know, that was 30, 40 years ago. So, um, Nowadays, they'd probably get you out in a couple of weeks. And uh, with your mom's expertise in physical therapy, I probably wouldn't have been in the chair as long as I uh, was. But I think the defining part of being in a really bad accident, uh, people have studied this in terms of uh, subsequent uh, leadership roles that people take on. And I think the notion, which I never really felt, but I suppose it, I'd have to acknowledge it could have been in my subconscious, is that you know when, you're, when you've had a really near-death experience, you do tend to come out of it relishing the opportunity to kind of get going and, and uh, go uh, do something meaningful with your life. Interesting. I mean, that, I mean, that, that makes sense, right? Like mm-hmm. you, it, it puts like a, a real finite time or like, I don't know, maybe it, it, it makes your, the time seem more finite, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so now, nowadays, I mean, you're huge in the benefits and wellness space. Um, you were the the former CEO of Staywell Health, which I think is it's one of the largest health and wellness companies in the world, right? And then also of Park Nicollet Institute. So, how did those years of being an athlete uh, translate into your success in in, in uh, the real world, so to speak? Yeah. Well, uh, I was uh, CEO of both those organizations, but uh, it probably shouldn't go without saying that uh, I worked in the field for a good 25, 30 years, you know, toiling like the, the rest of my colleagues and staff to, to get to the top uh, position. And I think when you get to the top position, you're probably more, especially when you end up in uh, top positions for organizations that you work for. In this case, I had worked for both those groups for many years. I think you you, you come with a deep sense of humility that you got there because all the colleagues working around you are who that who helped you get there. You know, they made you successful and hopefully you pitched in on their success. So uh, I think the connection obviously between sports and any uh, success in business is it's a team effort, you know, that uh, just as I said, in uh, gymnastics, what you learn is, you know, surround yourself with top people and that you'll uh, imitate and emulate and hopefully catch up to them. And the same is true in business. The more you surround yourself with uh, people who you really 
find to be smart and productive. And in my case, I always uh, favor hanging with very positive people. That's why I like hanging with you, Alex. You're uh, a <laughs> study that I ever had in windsurfing. And I think it's because you just uh, have a certain joy and, and uh, a certain go, go uh, get it attitude about it. So that's always been the case in my work life. Uh, as well as that, I, I think uh, you end up in leadership positions um, because you're working with people. They're not working for you. You're working with them, and they sort of prop you up, and hopefully you prop them up at the same time. It's more of a, of a culture piece to mm -hmm. it almost. Like yeah, well, and I've been really lucky. Both organizations that I led uh, had uh, cultures of respect, uh, cultures of, of uh deep appreciation for expertise uh, and cultures that really, uh, I think, made you feel productive Productive because you're surrounded by other people who really wanted to be productive and do the right thing for their patients or for their customers. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, that, I mean, that makes hundred percent sense. Did you, what was it, what was it like leading that organization though? Like, did you, I mean, I know you talked about surrounding yourself with people who are, or more, more, more intelligent, or very positive. Like, what were some of the practices that you used uh, to maintain that? Because, like, I feel like it's very hard to maintain. Like, once you have a culture, to maintain it or to improve it, right? It's and an, it's one. I think it's one of the most fragile things in a company is is the culture, but it's also one of the most important. Because that's how you get those great people to work for you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's one of those intangibles that you know. There are people that do nothing but study uh, workplace cultures, and I've I've done my. Uh, fair share of uh, studying. I do think that um, cultures are made both top down and bottom up. And so uh, as much as I think a lot of people like to study leadership as one of these key characteristics that uh, define the culture that often you hear that the uh, culture becomes a lot uh, like the personality of the leader. I think there's a lot of truth to that, but I think the understudied uh, phenomenon is followership and this idea of exemplary followership. And so as much as I enjoyed the years later in my career of, of being a CEO of these organizations, um, I think I equally enjoyed being a good follower, you know, and I think I was an exemplary follower. And what I mean by that is that um, I never had a career path where I mentally moved into, I want to get to this job at a certain amount of years and then I want to get to this job and then eventually I want the top job. I never just thought that way. The way I did think is I really want to do fun, interesting, and cool, useful work. And I really want to sort of uh, chip in and support, you know, the team I'm working with uh, to get this done together. And so exemplary followership um, typically means uh, that you're a cheerleader for the top people as much as they're a cheerleader for you. And so once I was in the top job, I found it easy to cheer on my colleagues because I just was a natural cheerleader for them uh, during the times when I uh, worked with them or under them. Do you think it was more important to be a good follower or or was, was being a good follower super important to being a good leader? Well, I think actually they're very, they're mirror images of one, one against the other. I think they're kind of the same attribute, you know, that the only thing that changes is your position. Yeah. There's a famous uh, scholar in the business uh, academic circles named, I think his first name is Robert. I'm pretty sure his last name is Herzberg. And if you mm -hmm. look up the, the writings of Herzberg on uh, management and leadership, he argues that there's three kinds of power. Um, there's position power, you know, if you've got the top job, mm -hmm. but there's what he calls referent power, which is... Uh, kind of like the referee, it's about relationships. And then there's knowledge power. So either you get things done because you're really smart and know your stuff and are an expert, or you get things done because you're really good at relationships and you know how to work with other people, or you get things done because you can make orders for people to do stuff because you're the top boss. So of those three, Alex, let me ask you, which is the most influential form of power? Well, definitely not the first one where it's top down. I would say the middle one. Uh, relationship power. Yeah. And that's absolutely right. So the studies show over and over that effective leaders are relationship people. And they, you know, uh, Bill Gates you can, says you can define leadership in two words. You only need two words. 
to be a great leader and distinguish you from just being a good leader. Those two words are empower others, empower others. So that's a relationship thing. You know, that's me saying, Alex, you're going to be beating my windsurf speed record within two seasons. <laughs> and, uh, me believing it. And me saying, I'm a badass windsurfer who has 27 miles an hour documented, but I'm saying you're going to beat that because you're even a bigger badass than I am on the water. So <laughs> empowering others. Uh, what do you suppose is the least powerful? Of the, yeah, position power is the least powerful way to get things done. So as much as, you know, some people seek out the top job, you know, if they get it and they don't they haven't nailed it on the knowledge thing and on the relationship thing, they're just not going to be very effective as position leaders. So how did you empower others? And like, what were some, like, obviously there's not like, it's different for each person because everybody's so unique, but like, what were some of, I, like, for example, when you were talking to me right now, when you were saying, I think you're going to beat my speed record, like that made me feel good, right? Even like, even if, um, <laughs> like, I don't know, even if you believe it or not, just like inspiring me to shoot for that goal, I feel like is, is that kind of what it is? Like you're empowering people to think bigger than what they thought that they could do. Yeah, I hope so, Alex. And if, if there's any flaw that I probably found recurrently seems to bubble up for me as a leader is you've heard that expression that your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. Um, I do think I have a, a strength over the years and just really uh, rallying uh, to people and sort of feel like they're, they're capable of so much and that uh, I, and, and I have, been told now and then that, you know, you think I can do more than I think I can do myself. The weakness part of that is that occasionally I have, I have uh, accelerated people too, too, uh, too fast. I have tried to move people into the comfort zone. And I can think of two or three examples where I gave someone too much responsibility too soon and they weren't ready and it backfired, meaning, you know, they felt bad rather than felt empowered. So, so I got to be careful with that. Would you would you mind going into one of those? Like just like going through it? I'm, I'd be curious. You mean an example like that? Yeah, just like not with any not with any specific. Uh, yeah, I mean I won't name. What? Yeah, of course, I won't name names. But um, the one uh, one it was traumatic for uh, my my colleague and for me, and it, thankfully it was years ago. So you know uh, I know that she turned out just fine and she's really a good solid professional. But there was a, a, a opening. To, in a, to a leadership position relatively high in a research organization. And um, she was still relatively new compared to others. But because I saw her as such a strong relationship person, and because I knew she had plenty of smarts, I really um, first encouraged her and then basically asked her, I need you to take this position. I really want you to lead this team. And Alex, she had to quit in two days. And oh. I... I begged her. I begged her. I said, please don't quit. I've made a mistake. If you don't want this job, if you really don't feel like you can do it, we still will find something else for you here. And, you know, for sure, let's figure out how to fix this. And I'm afraid that was an example where she felt pushed into a thing she wasn't ready for. I think she was a bit embarrassed that it didn't uh, uh, work out, you know, in very short order. She was seeing examples where she wasn't uh, feeling ready for it. So, like I said, your strengths can bite you and be a weakness if you're not careful dang that's crazy i'm glad you share that because that's actually super insightful. what was the other one maybe just quick what was the uh, second one? well they're they're similar in nature i think the other ones that come to mind are projects uh where uh i probably gave too big of a project to a person without enough detail you know that some people really do want you to sort of give them the recipe and not just say go cook this thing up and, and as someone who's done a lot of projects and uh, I've built a lot of products over many years, what seems intuitive to me or might come naturally to me or something I feel like I don't need to give a lot of coaching and instruction on, there's just been too many examples, uh, Alex, where I'll say, you know, this is your project. You can run with this. Let me know when you need help. And then, you know, some weeks later, I'm, I'm not seeing the progress that, you know, would, would have been apparent to me had I been leading it and I have to circle back and almost start from step one and have wasted some time because I didn't sort of um, ease someone into the project and given them, given them more work direction. So another example where you can be overly zealous in your uh, uh, um, thinking that someone's ready when they're not. So 
another example, Alex, is when you were asking the other day if you can get out windsurfing in this super high fall wind on a lake where the ice just went out. I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell if you were telling. I was hinting at. Are you thinking you're really ready for this? <laughs> because the worst thing I can do, and it's happened to me, is you're out in the middle of a big lake. You're in the water more than you're on the board, and you're getting hypothermic. And the thing with hypothermia is you don't know you're having it. That's one of the symptoms: is you're losing muscle control and you're losing your brain's ability to distinguish what's going on physically to you. So I've, I've been in trouble out on big water on this time of year and finally did manage to, you know, clumsily make my way back to shore. And it wasn't until 30 minutes on shore where I finally warmed up to, uh, to enough to know I was in big trouble out there. <laughs> I was not able to get back up on the board because I was hypothermic. Were you just like shaking so, a bunch? You got so that, uh, well, no, you don't. That's the other problem with hypothermia. You're, you're so numb. Uh, as to sort of just be not shaking. And then, you know, 20 minutes after you get back, you start shaking like you're going to uh, fall apart because your uh, body finally kicks in. Your body <laughs> isn't shaking. Your heart and lungs are taking whatever uh, uh, um, energy and calories they can muster to just keep that part of your system going. Okay, well, that actually concerns me because I remember when we were doing the, the plunge this winter, uh, we, yeah. we would do and go in the water for 10, 10 minutes yeah. you get about five minutes like the first two couple minutes were the worst and then you have a couple yeah. minutes where it, it gets better and then you're fine yeah and then well you're fine you're actually stupid at that point your brain your brain is shutting down you think you're fine <laughs> but it's exactly. everything that your body has is going to your heart level to try to keep you alive and then you get out of the water and then you're like super warm and then 15 minutes later, you start violently shaking. Everybody did this. And yeah, so maybe that wasn't the smartest thing to do, looking back on it. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to scare you. Anyways, crazy. So um, I, I wanted to touch, ba uh, touch back on your time at Staywells um, because that is one of the largest you know, benefits companies in the space right now. Or, I mean, it will, or one of the one of the largest wellness companies in the world. And I feel like health is such a big topic right now with the coronavirus and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd be curious, you've been in the space a long time. We've never had a virus like this and this virus preys, especially on the people who are um, maybe less immune capable or like have a, have a much weaker immune system. And a lot of that is due to obesity or not being active. So I'd be mm -hmm. curious how you see this space changing. What was your time like there? And what were the, the changes you saw and what are the changes you think are going to happen moving forward in this yeah. space? Yeah, I'm always glad to talk about uh, Staywell. It's uh, um, one of the most successful and longest standing uh, wellness companies in the world. It's uh, uh, 30 years old, 30 year old company. I actually worked for it when it was first founded back when I was your age. I was in product development at the time. And then I went off to Park Nicollet for 20 years and then I came back to Staywell. Staywell, it's great pride in what it calls its boomerang employees. Uh, boomerangers meaning that they've worked at Staywell for a while, they go try something else for a while, and then they come back to Staywell because they love the culture and they boomerang back, you know, like you throw a boomerang and it comes back. And so I had to, there were some people that did that two or three times. There were three time boomerangers, they would uh, say they're back to Staywell again, partly because it's a relatively small industry. So people do, if they move, sometimes they do come and go in similar uh, companies. I would have the distinction of being the longest thrown boomerang, meaning I was gone 20 years before I came <laughs> back and I came back in the like CEO. So. A different boomerang. Yeah, sure. So. I have one. Uh, actually, someone did bring me back a, a, a boomerang. boomerang. I don't know. Yeah, from someone who was Australia and knew I was a boomeranger. So sure enough, yeah, I've got my... Okay. my uh, boomerang, uh, authentic boomerang from Australia. To, that's my distinction. So, um, yeah. Uh, so, and that's a testament to the culture. Now, some new news, Alex, that uh, is might be news to your audience, but it is uh, publicly reported already. Is that Staywell, one of the longest-standing companies, was simply bought just bought a couple weeks ago by WebMD. WebMD is also a real market leader in both uh, 
health promotion, and they're especially known for patient education and health education materials. So that joining of uh, Stay Well with WebMD is big news in the health and well-being uh, field, especially for worksite health promotion and hospital-based patient education and health promotion. So that's a that's a big big development, and I'll watch that with interest to see how they do uh, come together well. Um, glad to reflect on any of uh, the strengths of uh, Stay Well, but on your second question about uh, how the COVID-19 uh, virus is an important teachable moment for the field generally of uh, worksite wellness and certainly applies to the fitness center uh, business as well, Alex, is that um, on the obvious front, the weaknesses of the public health infrastructure broadly and the fact that we only spend 3% of our federal national uh, expenditure on public health and prevention is being felt mightily and how slow we are and how inadequate we are in terms of being prepared for managing this uh, epidemic. So one hopes on the other side of this, uh, that deeper investments in the virtual prevention and public health education uh, really is a wake up call. It's not uh, un unusual for uh, heavy smokers, for example, uh, to be told all their life they better quit smoking and it's not until they have the heart attack that they finally get around to saying, you know, I'm gonna take care of myself. I don't wanna have another heart attack. Well, well, let's see if this is the nation's heart attack and if they come out to the other side of this and actually tell themselves, you know, we better interact together in terms of public health infrastructure. Interesting. So you touched more on the, on the public health infrastructure. I was curious more on like the, on the, on the, on the corporate side because, well, I guess the public health infrastructure would be a piece of it because I know that the, uh, they call healthcare the tapeworm of corporate America because it costs so much. It costs corporate so corporate America so much to pay for yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. People out there they can't get right. their health. So I wonder if there's going to be a switch to um, pre uh, prevention versus the cure, which is kind of what the system is based on right now. Yeah, and I think my mind obviously goes to public health infrastructure foremost because this is a communicable disease. It's an infectious disease, and so that's what public health uh, infrastructure is built to manage uh, is the, the containment uh, of uh, and the mitigation of uh, communicable disease. But uh, for your point, uh, the other half of the Centers for Disease Control and a good amount of obviously the worksite wellness movement is more focused on non-communicable diseases, on chronic illnesses like obesity and diabetes and hypertension and, and uh, stress and uh, mental health issues. So on that front, Alex, one uh, one could speculate that this is the moment now when the wellness movement really ought to uh, take off. The early indication of that possibility that this might be a, a teachable moment that will really stick is that we have in Minnesota, one of the largest um, funded by tobacco lawsuit uh, money, the largest free phone-based tobacco cessation uh, service of any of the states. Uh, it's uh, a group that has been doing it for uh, 20 plus years. They're seeing an amazing spike in the number of people who are signing up now for smoking cessation for the obvious reasons. This is a disease that obviously goes preferentially to damaging and destroying your lungs. And so the vulnerability of lung health for smokers is way up there compared to uh, their uh, probability of contracting the disease and the probability of actually getting in big trouble with the disease. I've speculated, I don't, I don't know that we've seen this data uh, at, at all, but um, when you think of how deep trouble Italy got in so fast, and if you've been to Italy, you know, everybody's a smoker in that country. Yeah. You have to kind of ask yourself, you know, as part of why Italy uh, had such high mortality rates compared to everyone else's, you know, they're just, uh, uh, more vulnerable as smokers. So I think your implication is uh, when we think about immune systems more generally, not just about transmission of a bug, when we think about good nutrition and uh, fitness levels and non-smokers and people who manage their weight, it's also true. I have a, a friend who's an anesthesiologist. We were talking the other day about, um, you know, his um, experience with uh, respirators and uh, during surgery. And he was describing in some detail how for his obese patients, he's amazed 
how fast their respiration levels can plummet and how quickly he has to compensate for them during surgery simply because I think the, uh, uh, you know, I'm not a clinician, but I think he's basically saying the lung health and the ability of an overweight person to manage uh, respiratory uh, uh, threats is simply different than a young fit person like you. So I announced that the, the COVID-19 is a teachable moment where the worksite wellness movement will take off. Unfortunately, uh, you know, the history of, of both business and uh, political investment in public health is very reactive. You know, that the wellness movement tends to uh, be strong when companies are flush, when they feel like they're competing for talent, when they've got a good uh, business um, inertia going on. I worry as much as the logic would say that this is the time for the health and well-being movement to just take off. It's also a time where companies are coming out of this desperately off balance in terms of their balance sheets and in terms of their revenue and expense for the year. And uh, ironic as it sounds, I'm afraid that one of the things that they're gonna end up doing is spending less on health benefits and less on uh, employee uh, prevention until they get back to uh, a bottom line that's healthy enough to support it. So that sounds ironic. I guess the other example is the thousands of employees being laid off by health systems right now around the country. What could be more ironic at a time when people are desperately needing health care and hospital support, obviously just for this one problem, and that we're having to put uh, healthcare professionals out of work because the rest of the hospital is economically suffering under the burden of the infection. Well, yeah, that is super ironic, but also like companies too. Think about most people, you know, get their health insurance from their companies. And I think in the past three weeks, there's been 17 million people who've been laid off from their jobs. I'm sure the numbers, yeah. I'm sure that's underrepresenting. Like you think of just the hospitality and and travel industry, I'm sure is, is that. And you think about all the second and third order effects where those places, are, people aren't spending money at, at you know, at, at retail stores and whatnot. But yeah. something, something interesting that, I was just thinking of is about your reactionary uh, point is I feel like it's almost human nature. Like, so uh, an example would be up in Winnipeg, they built this thing called the, the flood, uh, the floodway. I think that's what it's called. It was like one of the largest, uh, like uh, one of the largest man-made projects on earth. Like they built it this on a huge, huge canal, I don't know, like 50 miles or something crazy like that. And they spent mm -hmm. so much money. And the governor got so much flack for it. He's like, hey, like we're, we live in a floodplain. This river floods. Uh, we need to be ready in, in, in case a flood happens. And then yeah. you know, sure, 15 years later, they had one of the largest floods. And luckily, they had the floodway. The floodway was filled to the brim and saved the city. And so it only it's only until that moment happens that it, it kind of sets in. Yeah, so. yeah well, that's just a beautiful example of why they call uh, prevention, the silent profession. You know, if you're doing it right, the bad stuff doesn't happen. And so how do you prove a negative, essentially? How can you be a leader who says, well, I know you didn't want to spend this money, but look, bad stuff isn't happening. <laughs> and uh, and so that, you know, that your story, if you put it alongside the Katrina story for New Orleans and the, you know, the devastation that one hurricane caused for a city that wasn't prepared, uh, you know, all the uh, all the billions of dollars they spent trying to recover when doing what uh, Winnipeg did would have cost them a fraction of what they did. The other metaphor I sometimes talk about is the 35W bridge collapse. I don't know if you yeah. uh, remember that. About uh, yeah. 14, 14 or, uh, people died. Uh, it was a bridge that the Department of Transportation experts had said was a vulnerable bridge for years in advance of that collapse. And they were asking for the tens of millions of dollars to shore up the infrastructure of the bridge. Then the bridge collapsed within days. The governor mobilized the hundreds of million dollars it was gonna to take to replace the bridge. So that's another example like you just described where until the bad things happen, uh, we just uh, don't, we seem to be reactive, willing to spend the money to fix the problem, but not willing to uh, look ahead. The, the benefit of the 35W bridge collapse for what it's worth is it really blew the whistle on bridge infrastructure nationally. That it was within weeks that states were saying, 
you know, our bridge is probably in worse shape than the 35W bridge was. And uh, I, I should go back and see how much the news about the creaking infrastructure of our bridges actually did translate to huge investment in bridges. I suspect uh, not as much as it should have. Interesting. And so you think that that's going to be the case for this? This is like to, to prevent this disease maybe would have been in the, you know, maybe billions on the worst case, like single single digit billions. And I think we're already close to five trillion with all the economic and second and third order effects that's happened. So yeah, it's kind of crazy. Well, in fact, the, Times did, the Times did a good public health infrastructure article today, Alex, that I think I, I'm, I'm just guessing at the numbers, but I think exactly what you just described, we're about to spend uh, trillions on the other uh, to, to try to recover from this. And I think the CDC had something in the nature of a billion dollars uh, that they were naming two or three years ago as the infrastructure that they really felt we needed to be ready for something like uh, COVID-19 and whatever's next. The uh, budget that they got handed uh, was a $50 million budget before the COVID-19. Now, uh, after COVID-19, they're up to $500 million uh, budget to try to start rebuilding infrastructure. But that, again, is nowhere near the billion dollars that they had named that we probably really need to get uh, caught up. Dang. Sneeze really quick. Maybe not. I'm good. Cool. Well, um, I, I earlier you were talking about uh, your time at Staywell and said you had some stuff you wanted to reflect on there. Is there anything in particular that you that you wanted to share about your time at Staywell? Well, I think my main hope for this field, Alex, is that it uh, grows proportional to the evidence of its effectiveness. I think that's true of uh, the fitness center business. That's certainly true of the worksite wellness business. One of the things that I loved about Staywell and that made them such a strong leader in the worksite wellness movement over the 30 years is that as much as I think we were pretty good at product development and pretty good at um, working with companies to really be strategic about how they spent their money and employee benefits, we always were the company that led in research. We were always the company that had the most number of studies published on any given year about the effectiveness of our group education or about the effectiveness of phone-based health coaching or about the effectiveness of mass health screenings or about the cost impact of reducing risks uh, among employees in the workplace or about the productivity benefits of reducing risks in the workplace. What I think is a threat to the growth of the field generally is when organizations uh, overpromise and underdeliver. Uh, you know, the old bromide in business is always under promise and over deliver, deliver. So too often in this field, there have been folks who don't do the research, who really aren't as focused on the evidence of what works and what doesn't stay well. And they come into organizations promising that they can reduce a lot of risks and save a lot of money. And they just don't have the evidence to back it up. And so employers, I think, give them a try. Uh, feel like the program didn't engage a lot of employees or didn't really save them any money that they can find and didn't really uh, make people healthier or happier than, as they were promised. And so they're on, on looking for sort of the next uh, shiny object uh, that they can throw at their employees to try to make them healthier and happier. So I, that that's, uh, again, a strength of StayWell is it was a, a terrific evidence-based organization. WebMD, I think, has some of the same history in terms of making sure they produce uh, patient education materials that are really effective in helping people better manage their own uh, conditions. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that more organizations will, um, will see the benefit, you know, the long-term sustainability of those two companies who didn't overpromise um, and did overdeliver. And, uh, and that's my hope for the field generally is that it really sets a pace uh, that's uh, evidence-based. Hmm. I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. So uh, when are we, when are we going to get out uh, windsurfing again? <laughs> well, uh, like I said, I, uh, I don't want you stuck in the middle of this uh, lake uh, uh, in the water more than on the board. So uh, uh, you're, you're, uh, you know what? I, here's the deal. You can go yeah. out anytime you want, but you have to show me that you can actually tack or jibe 
uh, within the first half a mile and get back to shore before uh, before I let you get a mile out there. So it'll be a progressive thing. I was able to do it pretty well at the end of the season last year, but I feel like coming in the beginning, I'm going to be a little rusty. I don't know. That's just kind yeah, of yeah. You're going to be a little rusty. Well, it's an off-season sport. I mean, the uh, by your third season, I won't worry, worry about you nearly as much. But the the uh, the badass windsurfers, this is their time. You know, they're out there sweating it up because they're in dry suits and they're going like hell and they're probably sweaty. And everyone looks out there and the ice is just out and they're saying, aren't these guys freezing to death? And the reality is with a good dry suit on and if you're not in the water the whole time, you're actually staying on the board. Uh, the dry suit is to keep you safe if you do wipe out and uh, need to swim in. Uh, but they're all sweating it up. They're, they come in soaked. Uh, because they, you know, they've been working hard without being in the water. So, uh, we, uh, but that's again the guys who can show me that they can get back uh, without being in the water half the time. You know, within short order. Yeah, that probably makes sense. Yeah, especially especially now that you explained like the hypothermia stuff. I yeah. really definitely had it. <laughs> like, yeah. well, and it, it, it snowballs. You know, you get clumsy, so you end up in the water. It takes a lot of energy, as you know, to water start and get out of the water. And so, yeah. and then you're getting tired and you're back in the water. And the more you're in the water, the clumsy you're going to get. But pretty soon, because you're clumsy, because you're hypothermic, it's the reason you're not getting out of the water. And now you're uh, increasingly spending more time in the water saying, why am I not getting up? Well, because you're stupid now. Your brain isn't working. Your muscles aren't working. So, uh, so that's the risk. When did you first start windsurfing? I'm curious. I never, I don't, I don't know if I ever. Probably your age. I've been, I've been windsurfing 30, 30 years. So I, I was in my, uh, in my twenties, mid twenties. First time was uh, on a sailing trip in the Caribbean. And I, I remember as you've experienced, I was going out to sea and I couldn't for the life of me come back. I kept going that way and I couldn't come back the other way. And I was finally, I was sitting on the board waving my arms for the people who were back on shore and they finally occurred to them, I don't think he's coming home. <laughs> We've got to go get him. So they had to drag me in back in the, that was probably back in the mid eighties. Dang, that's crazy. Cool. Well, I think that about does it. I appreciate you chatting uh, and sharing your journey through sports yeah. and fitness and absolutely destroying or becoming such a, such a big wig in the uh, wellness space. Uh, every expectation and view is going to go on the same path. It's just going to get bigger and better as you go. I hope so. I hope so. Especially if your predictions on the wellness industry take hold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the hope. You're in the right place at the right time, Alex. I hope so. I hope so. Um, well, thank you so much, Paul. And uh, we'll, we'd love to have you back on. Yeah. Uh, and be, wait, stay down here for All a little right, bit. Pleasure. I want to... Talk to you later. No, 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 no. Stay on for a little bit. I want to I right. say thank you. And the rest of the stuff on here. Um, edit all this out but thanks so much for coming on I really appreciate it hopefully uh, it was fun and hopefully our you know listeners got a pretty good take on it because I because you're such a expert in the industry so my pleasure thanks thanks for the opportunity yeah yeah um, oh and guess what I'll find out this week or in a couple days about the next Olympic hopeful thing and what because yeah, it's all yeah. stuff, stuff. So. I'm sure they've all gotten rescheduled and reorganized, and they'll have to be patient. Yeah, that should be fun. Cool. Well, I look forward to coming and windsurfing with you soon. Yeah, shouldn't be long. We'll get you out there. All right. Later, Paul. Yep. Talk to you later.